Bettina and John. love to watch it when the kids head out for children's church. You know, they're really enthusiastic about that. <laughs> I, I choose to take that in a positive way. Not, <laughs> not that they just can't wait to get out of here, right? <laughs> but that they're really excited about going to see what the Lord would have for them. So, it'd be great as adults if we expressed some of that childlike enthusiasm to be in the house of the, of the Lord Anyway, on the front of your um, bulletin there appears a statement of mission. Don't look there yet. I'm just wondering how many know what it is. First of all, how many know that it's there, and then how many know what it is? Could anybody recite it without looking? Eh, some could, probably. Why don't you go ahead and look at it just to be refreshed, Right? Foothill Bible Church exists to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him. That is the mission of this church. But the question that becomes is, how do you go about implementing a mission statement like that? What embodies that mission, what, what, what activities flesh it out? I mean, it's nice-sounding words on paper, but, but what does it look like in shoe leather? In uh, January of this year, the elders went away on a retreat, as we do every year, and the purpose of the retreat this past January was to consider whether, we, whether it was advisable for us to... to spend the time and, and effort and energy necessary to prepare a 10-year strategic plan in order to guide this ministry into the future. You know, this, uh, this fellowship is a, is a stewardship from God. He has entrusted it to us, and He has entrusted it for a purpose. He could just as easily remove it as He did entrust it. And so the elders went on that retreat and after a considerable amount of time and, and uh, prayer and discussion, we came to the conclusion that yes, indeed, uh, unanimously we came to that conclusion that a strategic plan was exactly what this church needed. We need to know where we're going and thus we can know whether we got there or not, Right? If you don't aim at anything, you'll hit it every time. But we need to be more focused. And so beginning in April of this past year, just a few months ago, we began in earnest the process of preparing a 10-year strategic plan. We've been meeting together several times a month for a number of hours, and then there's lots of work to do in between the meetings in terms of of homework in terms of thinking and praying and, and exchanging ideas through email and things like that. And as we've come back together, we've seen this process really take some legs. 
And it's, a, it's very, very exciting. And I, I can hardly um, contain myself and, and want to unveil it, but it's not finished yet. So that would be premature to do such a thing. What, is, what has been finished is that we, as an elder board, have arrived at what we consider to be the five core values that guide this ministry. And uh, I, uh, I want to share those with you, not this morning, but soon. Soon I will be doing that, sharing those five core values with you. In fact, it probably will become a, a five-part sermon series as we look at each of those five core biblical values that underpin everything that we do and everything that we will do going forward. Presently, now that we've established those core values, we are thinking and praying and praying and thinking and praying and praying with regard to the strategic initiatives that we believe God would have for this congregation. Where are we going specifically? How do we flesh out the diligent pursuit of Christ and the courageous proclamation of Him? What does it look like? And as we again finalize more of that we will have that available to share with you as well and the and the idea behind all of this is so that we as a fellowship together embrace one common identity that we're all pulling together in the same direction that we would believe the lord would have us to go as i said i can't emphasize enough how much prayer has been and continues to be a part of this process it is very much being bathed in the individual and corporate prayers of the elders and some of you who are aware of it and are praying for us as well. Now, using that, I suppose, as a segue, open your Bibles to a John 17, where we are going to uh, look at the prayer of Jesus. You know, it's interesting because the synoptic Gospels mention Jesus praying frequently. There are just many, many references through those synoptic gospels, through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that talk about Jesus going away to pray. But there is very little about the content of his prayers. Very little revealed about what it is he actually prayed. What what did he say when he prayed? It just talks about him praying a lot. There are very, very small and very occasional glimpses into the actual prayer life of Jesus Christ to be found in the Gospels. But here in John 17, we have the longest recorded prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ in the whole Bible. So if you're wondering what did he pray, John 17 is certainly a passage that you must go to and you must deal seriously with because this reveals, as I say, the longest recorded prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the uniqueness of this prayer lies in the fact of who it is that offered it, Jesus Christ, and the time in which he offered it, that is, the the nights of his arrest and sham trials and crucifixion. So this is a a heavy-duty prayer. He knows that he's going to the cross. And so he is praying in advance of that. He's headed back to heaven. He knows that. He will say that in this prayer himself. He's returning to heaven, but he knows that the path of return for him goes through the cross. All the horror, all the the unspeakable torture of Roman crucifixion awaits him. 
but way, way, way beyond the physical problems of Roman crucifixion lies the, the real devastation, and that is the temporary fracturing of the intertrinitarian fellowship between he and his father when all the sin of all of his people for all time is loaded upon Jesus Christ and it, it devastates him to such an extent that, that it almost involuntarily it pours from his lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what lies before him and he knows it. So this is not just a short prayer, you know, that you rip off on the way to work. This is, this is the pouring out of the heart of Jesus Christ. Now, given that kind of context, what does he pray for? And whom does he pray for? What is it that occupies his thoughts in these final hours? Well, the passage, John 17 does break down somewhat nicely into three parts. Uh, we're not going to look at it that way this morning, but let me just, it'll be an overarching framework that we will use. So let me just kind of point it out to you. Really, verses 1 through 5 is the first part of his prayer, and that's his prayer for himself. Jesus begins here by praying for himself, and, and, the, and the gist of the prayer is that, is that the cross will bring glory to God the Father. That is the, that is the gist of that prayer in the first five verses here of John 17. He prays for himself, and what he prays is that his going to the cross will bring glory to God the Father. Then he turns his attention from himself to his, his followers, to his, his disciples, in particular in verses 6 through 19, he prays for the eleven, the eleven apostles there. And, and what he prays for them is that the Father would keep them from falling in this hour of trial. That he would hold back the evil one. You could almost think of this section, verses 6 through 19, as, as Jesus saying, in effect, Father, I, I, I've... I've been watching over them this whole time, but I'm going to be indisposed for a while, and I need you to watch them for me. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm, I'm going to be preoccupied in something else, and so, Father, I'm entrusting them to you. You, please, watch them for me. And then third, he enters here in verses 20 through 26, and he prays for, for you and I. He prays for those that would that would join the fellowship that he has with his apostles through their word. And so he's praying for the church at large through the ages. Okay, So his prayer starts with himself to the glory of God, then for the apostles that they would be kept from falling, and then for all the rest of the believers of all the rest of the ages that they would be in fellowship with him through the message that he's entrusted to his apostles. That's the structure. Outgrowing rings. This is commonly called Jesus' high priestly prayer. You know, we, uh, over in Matthew, we talk about the Lord's prayer, but really that's the disciples' prayer. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray, and he, he teaches them how to pray. This is his prayer. This is his high priestly prayer because it, the majority of this prayer is occupied with him petitioning the Father on behalf of his people. So he's acting as a high priest in this prayer. Now, 
We need to see this prayer as a, as a teaching vehicle. Okay, we need to just kind of ask ourselves, why is it recorded for us? Why, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, did the Apostle John record this prayer? I mean, as I said, the Synoptic Gospels are loaded with, with statements that Jesus prayed, but, but relatively few examples of what it was he prayed. But here we have this lengthy prayer recorded for us. Now, I believe that they actually overheard this prayer, and I think that fits with the purpose for which this prayer is recorded, and that is that it is to teach us something. Jesus is praying to God, and, but in the, he's praying out loud in front of his witnesses and under inspiration those witnesses record it for us so that we might learn something. Over in uh, John 11, don't, we won't go there, verses 41 42, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus ushers a quick prayer and he says specifically there, I prayed these things so that they might hear and know. The Old Testament in Ezra chapter 9, verses 6 to 15, again, don't look there, but, but Ezra prays a very moving prayer of repentance on behalf of his people. And then in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, it says the people were so moved by his prayer that they repented themselves. It was such a powerful prayer. And, and therefore, Ezra, knowing full well the power of that prayer, recorded it for all future generations to read. So these prayers very much have a, a, a teaching component to them. And that's what we're going to do together is we're going to, we're going to examine the teaching component of this prayer. What is it that Jesus wants us to know from this prayer? Historically, John chapter 17 has been huge in the lives of many, many people. For example, the great Scottish reformer John Knox had this prayer read to him every day during the remaining weeks of his life when he was dying Every day, this is the prayer that he wanted read to him. And what he said on it was some of his last words on his deathbed was that this prayer really ministered strength and comfort to him in his remaining days. And so he would have it read to him. Thomas Manton, a Puritan pastor and preacher and chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, Lord High Protector of England, preached 45 sermons on John 17. Not bad, huh? Now, I'm not going to make Manton's record. I'm not going to even try for it. But, but this chapter is so loaded, it took him 45 sermons. By the way, when the Puritans preached, you know, it wasn't little sermonettes for Christianettes. It was, it was massive expositions, you know, hour and a half, two hour type sermons where they come along and knock you on the head with a hard wooden knob if you're falling asleep. So, so Thomas Manton really explored this passage. Very, very important. Well, enough said. Let's get a look at it. John 17, beginning in verse 1. These things Jesus spoke, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
And now, glorify me together with you, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We're going to be looking just at these five verses this morning, and actually not all of them. In your bulletin, it doesn't say part one because they always press me for bulletin titles um, before I'm ready. And so, um, be that as it may, you can pencil in part one. I've entitled this Mission Accomplished. Mission Accomplished. That's the umbrella that sits over these five verses. And I get that really out of verse 4 where Jesus says, right, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Mission accomplished. I have done all that you sent me to do. That's the gist of it. So this morning, as we look or begin to look at these five verses together, what we want to recognize are are three requirements, three requirements that we must meet if we are going to accomplish our mission in life. Jesus lays out for us in these five verses, I believe, three requirements. If we meet these three requirements, then we will also be able to say at the end of it all, I have accomplished all that you sent me to do. So what's the first one? Number one, first requirement is that we are to fulfill, if we are to fulfill the mission, we must seek the Father's glory. If we are to fulfill the mission that Jesus has for you and I, then we must seek the Father's glory. That's in verses 1 and 2. Now, there's a tight connection here between this prayer in John 17 and what goes before in John 13 through 16. You can see it right at the beginning of verse 1. Look there. It says, these things Jesus spoke. He's referring back to, uh, John is referring back to what has gone on before in in chapters 13 through 16. Now, one possible way to understand this is, is to see this occurring on the road to Gethsemane. The basically, that there in the upper room was the foot washing and then the supper and the dismissal of Judas and some additional teaching. And then at the end of 14, he says, arise and let's be going. And so it's, it's, it's possible that at that point they actually get up and leave the room. That, that actually appeals to me to see it that way because Judas has been dismissed. He's off to get the Roman guards and the, and the uh, Jewish authorities to come back and to arrest Jesus. And I, I picture Jesus with, uh, you know, a, a sand dial on his wrist and he's kind of watching it. And he's figuring how long it's going to take them to get the authorities and get back here and to arrest him. And he's, he's, he's figuratively, you know, watching the time. And he says, arise, let's go. We got to get out of here. And so they get up and they go before the authorities can come back to get them. And that there they move towards the temple and that's when John 15 occurs when he talks about I am the vine, right? You are the branches. And I told you when we went through that chapter that there on the temple gates were these great vines there that made a perfect backdrop for the whole teaching on the vine. So I think that occurs there and in chapter 16 with it there somewhere outside the temple area. And then I believe what Jesus does is, is he offers this prayer to sort of conclude that section of the teaching. And then when you look ahead to chapter 18, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, he went forth with the disciples over the ravine of the Kidron and into a garden. And so I think at that point he then 
crosses the Kidron and up and into the valley, into the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe so, maybe not, but at least to me it makes sense as sort of a movement through this section. But here, Jesus now, at the beginning of his prayer, <clears throat> he, John says all this stuff has gone before. Based on what's gone before, Jesus now prays. He lifts his eyes to heaven, a very common prayer posture of the day. And he addresses his father in, in, a, in the most intimate of terms. Look again at verse 1. Notice he just says, Father. He just calls out to him. He says, Father, glorify your son. Father, glorify your son. And in the most intimate of ways, he begins to communicate with his father. I believe what we have here, again, under inspiration, is that we are eavesdropping on inter-Trinitarian conversation. The heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is now going to be revealed and we are allowed to eavesdrop in on it. And what is the first thing he says? Look again at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Our, the hour, my hour, that concept of an hour in John's gospel is very significant. It's a motif that runs through the gospel. It, it demonstrates Jesus' self-consciousness with regard to his, to his mission and the timetable of that mission. He came, John says, right? He left the throne rooms of glory. He took on human flesh that he might walk among us, that he might explain the Father to us, John 1.18. And very conscious of that process that it was going to take him to the cross. And the cross is the hour. Very early in John's gospel, there at the wedding feast in John 2, he, his mother wants him to, to uh, do a miracle, right, of some sort. And, and he says to her, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to reveal myself in a full and public way. Over in John 4, he speaks to the Samaritan woman. John 4, 21 to 23. And, and there he says, an hour is coming when God will no longer be worshipped through ritual." She wants to trap him into a conversation with regard to do we worship at Gerizim, do we worship in Jerusalem, do we worship the Jewish way or the Samaritan way, or what, you know, give me the ritual. And he says, an hour is coming, and in fact now is, when worship is no longer conducted that way, but it is internal and it is conducted in spirit and in truth. He says in John 5.25, speaking to the, to the Pharisees, he says the hour has arrived for the spiritually dead to respond to Jesus Christ. Over in John 7, verse 30, John 8, verse 20, John, as the narrator tells us, that twice the authorities want to arrest Jesus, but he eludes their grasp because his hour has not yet come. They can't arrest him yet. It's not time. It's not time. And then in John 12, and verse 23, the Greeks come to him and they want to have an audience with him. And it says now that the hour, he, Jesus says, the hour has now arrived for me to be glorified. It has gotten there. And what he's talking about is really the, the kickoff of the Passion Week. And so all through John's Gospel, there is this very self-conscious awareness of the fact that Jesus is moving on a divine timetable to a certain predetermined appointment with his destiny. And that appointment is, is now here. Father, verse 1 again, the hour has come. It's here. Now I will die. 
I couldn't die before this because I had not accomplished all that you had sent me to do, but now I've accomplished it all, verse 4, so now it's time to die. Now it's time. can't help noticing, by the way, when you look at this, that Jesus is not some sort of fatalist. You see that? I mean, he's very aware that the hour has come that he's going to die. He's very much aware that he's accomplished everything that he was sent to accomplish, right? Mission accomplished. And so why is he praying? You ever think about that? If anyone was aware of the, of the sovereignty of God and the outworking of his eternal plan, it was the, the second person of the, of the Trinity, right? The eternal Son of God. He knew, yet here he voices a prayer to God. And it's not in spite of God's sovereignty, it's because of God's sovereignty. It's because the hour has arrived that he then voices the prayer that God's will would be done. He prays that that which will come to pass will come to pass. Beloved, there are all kinds of advantages and purposes of prayer, but one very clear one is that it aligns us with the will of God. And Jesus here is fully aligned with the will of God. God's sovereignty is never an excuse for inactivity. Just the opposite. It's, it's an incentive to pray that God will accomplish that which he has purposed to accomplish. So, Jesus is praying here. And again, take a look at verse 1. What is it that he's asking for? What is his petition here? It's a very simple one in verse 1. Glorify your son. That's his petition. Glorify me. Exalt me. Honor me. Praise me. Set me before men so that they will see me in such a way that they, will, that they will attribute all kinds of praise and glory and honor and splendor to me. That's what his request is. To glorify, to, to lift up. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. Bring all that praise and honor and glory and splendor to me so that I might turn around and reflect it to you. Ultimately, his request is, is that God would be glorified, right? That God the Father would be lifted up. That all of mankind would look to him. That they would honor him, that they would praise him that His glory would be displayed and it would be displayed most perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ. To glorify God is to reveal Him. Or maybe said better the other way, to reveal God is to glorify Him. To talk about who He is, what He has done. The psalmist says over in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God. When, they, when, when people look into the heavens, they see the splendor and majesty of God on display. And so it, it, by telling that forth, it glorifies Him. But the most complete, the most perfect, the fullest possible revelation of the glory of God is to be found in the person of His Son. All right, again, John 1, verse 18, uh, that he came to explain the Father. He came to 
glorify the Father. It is in the face of Jesus Christ that God receives his glory, 2 Corinthians 4.6. Right of the Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, says it this way. He says, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It was Jesus' life that brought God glory. It was the way he lived his life, the miracles that he performed that pointed to the Father. It was the example of his life, of one living in complete and total dependence upon the Father, operating under the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, and most particularly, it was the cross of Jesus Christ that brought the Father glory. If you look at your gospel records, you'll notice that the, the one event that occupies the bulk of the space is the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. In fact, they talk about our Mark's gospel, and they say that it is a um, record of the Passion Week with an introduction. Okay? It's like he can't get quickly enough to the crucifixion. That is the theme that occupies them because it is that place most particularly where we learn about the Father and thus the Father's glory is displayed. So what is it that we learn about God the Father by Jesus on that cross? What is it that he shows forth of the Father's glory there on that cross? Well, let me suggest some things to you. How about holiness? He shows forth the Father's holiness, that, in, that is that God cannot and will not tolerate sin. He shows forth the Father's justice, and that He cannot just look the other way. He can't, you know, sort of ollie ollie income free. It doesn't matter. I forgive you all. Justice must be served. It shows forth God's wrath and that He is angry with sin and sinners and there is punishment to be had. It shows forth the Father's love and that He sent His only Son, right? He so loved the world that He sent His only Son that He might redeem people to Himself, an undeserving people. It shows forth the Father's mercy for he did not destroy us all. There's much of the Father that is displayed in the cross. And so when Jesus is praying here in verse 1, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He is saying, bring on the cross. Because it is there on the cross that above all else that I've said and I have done, that I will most display your glory to the universe. Nothing can show what God is like in a more perfect sense than the cross of Jesus Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 85 and verse 10, he says, Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. What a perfect description of the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice that Jesus goes to the cross 
asking that the Father's glory be displayed through him in full confidence that it will happen. And then he draws upon an illustration in verse 2 to illustrate for us just how that glory is displayed. Notice in verse 2 we have the connecting words, even as. Do you see that, verse 2? Verse 2 is really an illustration of the request to be glorified in verse 1, where he says, glorify me that I may glorify you, even as, illustration of how you have glorified me in the past. It directly links these two verses together. How? Look again at the end of verse 1. Glorify me so that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 2 he says, You gave me authority over all mankind so that to all whom you have given me I may give eternal life. There is a comparison going on here. He's saying, Glorify me so that I may glorify you. He's saying, Just like in the past how you gave me authority so that I might give eternal life to all those whom you have given me. Let me, um, let me try to illustrate this for you. What is he talking about here in verse 2? According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, somewhere back in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, there was an inter-Trinitarian conversation. Now, it went something like this. God the Father said to God the Son, Son, I want to give you a bride. I want to give you a bride. Her name will be the church. Ephesians 5, right? 22 to 33. And I want you to wed this bride who will be drawn from among all of humanity, all of mankind. But there's a, there's a catch here. In order to, to receive this bride, you must leave the throne room of glory. And you must humble yourself and go down to the earth and take upon you human flesh, walk among them, show them whom I am and what I am like, and then die a horrible death in order to redeem her. Then you will return back to the throne room of glory where you will wait for the appropriate time for you to go and to receive your bride unto yourself. And in order for you to be able to accomplish this task, I have given you authority over all of humanity. Jesus says in Matthew 28:18, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? John 14, 1-3, Jesus says, I go to the Father's house to prepare a place for you and I will come and receive you to myself. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 says, Jesus humbled himself, right, by becoming an obedient servant as a man that he might redeem a people and then God then glorifies him back to the right hand. Even as you have given me authority over all mankind, so that... All whom you have given me, I may give eternal life. You gave me the authority, Father, so that I might give life to those 
who will be my bride. There is a very strong predestinarian theme that runs through this gospel. It flows out here. Look again at verse 2. I have authority over all mankind so that all whom you have given me I may give eternal life. Everyone doesn't get eternal life. Only those that are of the bride, those that are united by faith to Jesus Christ, those that have been given to him by the Father, that's what the text says. This theme runs, beloved, all the way through this gospel. We've been at this thing for three years, so let me remind you, some of you weren't even here when we began. So let's, let's look at a couple of verses together. Let me just walk you through this so you might understand. Go back to chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13, talking about the children of God, it says, "...who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, or will of man, but of God." It is God's will. Chapter 3, verse 3, speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said to him, "...truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that is, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, He had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. Not in terms of geography. In fact, it was to go out of his way to pass through Samaria. It was to avoid the normal travel route north to Galilee from Judah, but Jesus, it says, had to pass as a verb of necessity. He had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because it was an appointment with a lady at a well. Chapter 5, verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Chapter 6, verses 37 and following. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that all that He has given to me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 64, same chapter. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Chapter 10. Verse 14. 
I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall not perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Chapter 12. Verse 37 and following, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Chapter 15. And verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Chapter 17. Verse 6. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Beloved, it is all through this gospel. All over it from start to finish. The giving is God's responsibility. He has given a bride to His Son, and that bride is called the church. And it is made up of people drawn from every, every tribe and every tongue throughout all of humanity, given by the Father as a wedding gift to the Son before the foundation of the world. And it comes to pass in space and time when we fulfill our responsibility, which is to believe the gospel that is preached to us end of John's gospel, he said, these things are written so that you may believe. The giving is God's responsibility. The believing is ours. It is ours. The question you have to ask yourself is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus died on that cross to take away your sin? Not in some general, vague, abstract sense of, you know, all people are sinners and Jesus died for sinners, so he died for me. That's too impersonal. The question is, do you believe that Jesus went to that cross for you? Because you are a sinner. Because you are separated from God, residing under His wrath and justly deserving condemnation. Do you believe Jesus died for you? 
And do you believe that he has, as he says here, full and complete authority over your life? He says, you have given me authority over all mankind. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has full authority over you? Personally. And have you ever asked Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? Have you ever called out to him and said, Lord Jesus, I deserve condemnation. I am a sinner. I am, I am undone. I am wretched. In thought and word and deed, I have sinned against my Creator. I have no hope but your death for me. I believe by faith I embrace that death for me. Save me from my sins. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever called out to the Lord Jesus Christ like that? At the end of every service, we have people available over here by this lighted cross to talk with you about spiritual needs. You have no greater spiritual need than to assure your eternal destiny with God in Christ. If there is any consideration at all in your heart, any doubt, any uncertainty, today is the day of salvation. Make it right today. You come at the end of the service. You come and you, you talk and let them open the Scriptures to you and show you how you personally can come to know eternal life. Next week we're going to talk even more about what it means to have eternal life. Beloved, the Son came to glorify the Father. And nothing glorifies the Father more than His redemptive work on that cross. Three times in the first chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, talking about God's work in salvation, says it is to the praise of His glory. It brings God glory. What is your mission in life? Jesus' mission was very clear, very specific. He came to accomplish the Father's will. What is your mission in life? To the extent that God has given you glory, what are you doing with it? Are you basking in it or are you reflecting it back to the one who has given it to you? If you take inventory of your life right now, what do you see? To whose glory are you living? Our lives must not be cul-de-sacs where the glory of God comes and resides. Our lives need to be five-lane superhighways where the glory of God races and reaches a world desperately needing to see it. By God's grace, may that be true of us individually and as a fellowship together. Join me in prayer. God, our Father, to see the
confident certainty of the Lord Jesus Christ here at the end of his life, where he can pray that you would glorify him, that he might glorify you, and that he might say to you, I have done everything you sent me to do. Oh, Father, I pray that you would enable us to be able to speak like that. Not that we are going to go to a cross to redeem the world, such a foolish and blasphemous thought, but our Father, you have given us a mission in life to accomplish. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, could make a similar statement and say that I have, I have, kept the, I have run the race, I have kept the faith. Lord God, may you enable us to, uh, to live in that kind of way. We who have the light of the gospel shining within our hearts, may it pour forth like rivers of living water from our bellies. May we shine forth the light of the gospel to all who are around us. And our Father, for those among us who have yet to know the gospel in a saving way, I pray that today would be their day. Lord God, that there would be nothing that would hinder them. That you would unstop their ears and that you would open their hearts to receive the truth. That they would embrace by faith the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. For we pray in his name and for his glory. Amen.